Welcome back. We're now to some other day. We're barely into the month, but because it's February, we're already halfway through the month. That's what it feels like. Stuff's moving fast. Uh, we are, last week we finished up our walk through uh, uh, what we would call in maybe academic circles, a harmony of the life of Christ, essentially just trying to take all four Gospels and piece together really the, the chronological story of the life and times of Christ. And when you get to the end of that, you obviously, you actually end in Acts chapter 1 is where if you're going to go chronologically, that's where Christ ascends into heaven. And uh, what we're going to do, at least for the next couple weeks, we started back in the fall, back in the summer, we walked through did an overview over the Old Testament. We technically in the fall started, really how we got started was we're going to do an overview over the New Testament. So I want to keep us doing that, but there are some other aspects of uh, our worldview categories I'd like to get us in sooner rather than later, especially given um, rapid movements in our society and culture. Uh, but I don't want to flake out now. We've already come so far. We're on the home stretch. I want to get us through at least an overview through the New Testament. So we're going to do that uh, tonight and in the next couple of weeks, but I may, may move, uh, and it'll be a little easier to move a little, a little quicker because chances are uh, that if, if you have been a believer for, for much time and you have certainly, um, and many of you have in the room, uh, been a church member for a long time, this will probably be the, the portions of Scripture you are most familiar with. Now, that doesn't mean that Therefore, if you're familiar with them, we know everything there is in there, but, uh, but it'll be the portion chances are you're more familiar with because most of us tend to, uh, most sermons tend to come out of New Testament letters, and uh, many of us in our, in our Bible reading time tend to read there because it's some of the easiest uh, portions of Scripture to understand, though not always easy to uh, apply when it steps on your toes. So, but just by just curiosity, how many of you have really, really studied thoroughly the book of Acts. This is purely curiosity. If you've really thoroughly studied the book of Acts, raise your hand. This, this is what's interesting to me about the New Testament is many of us as believers, we've, we've to some level thoroughly studied uh, a gospel or the gospels. We know, um, you know, we've, we know um, Paul's letters. We've, we've tried to wade our way through Romans a time or two, and uh, it's got a lot of stuff. And we know General Electric Power Company, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, um, throw in some James, Hebrews. No one ever really talks about Hebrews. It's just kind of out there. Uh, and we all know Revelation, and you either really love Revelation or you're terrified of Revelation, one of the two extremes. But it's interesting to me, the book of Acts, we don't ever look at much, it seems to be, in the life of the church. Yet it is the primary book of Scripture that describes what the church looked like and did and moved and how the gospel spread. And, and, uh, and, and so, um, anyways, I, 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 it's, it's just interesting. And so we're going to do our best tonight. We'll see how far we get, but we're going to work through uh, the book of Acts. So if you've got your Bibles, just know that's where we're going to be starting. Uh, I've got some, some slides for you. This will show you uh, the, the Holy Land, uh, Israel, uh, at, the end of, uh, at the end of the life of Christ, beginning of the church era, uh, everything's going to start here in Jerusalem with the book of Acts. Now, let me give you some background. Uh, how would you classify the book of Acts, right? We've got books in Scripture that are poetry. We've got books in Scripture that are prophecy. We've got books that are, uh, we'd say, history, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. We've, we've said the Gospels are really ancient biography, not biography like we think of it. They're almost their own genre. Well, how would, we, how would we qualify Acts? Well, you could say history, but the challenge of just saying Acts is history uh, is the fact that the book of Acts covers a period of 30 years from chapter 1 to chapter 28, which is not what you'd probably expect when you're just reading through it. In addition to that, because it covers so much space and so little time, it's not fully a work of history because there's a lot of stuff that the writer chooses to not talk about. He didn't go into every detail. Instead, what you find is what we would call a theological history. It's a work of history, but there is a specific theological point that the writer is attempting to demonstrate and show, to, show us in looking at that history of the early church. Uh, the focus on, or if you, if you wanted to summarize the book of Acts in one verse or say, what's the theme verse 
for the whole book. Well, it'd be Acts 1, chapter 8, when Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea. By the way, here we go. Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And if you follow the outline of, of Acts, that's what Acts covers. The gospel being presented, people being saved, the Holy Spirit uh, indwelling in them, this church in Jerusalem. Then your next big movement is in, and in Jerusalem, and you see the church begin to spread out into the regions of Judea. Then your next big movement is in Samaria. And then your next big movement is a Gentile's family coming to faith in Christ. And your next big movement is set aside for me, Paul and Barnabas. And where do they go from there? Ultimately, to the ends of the earth. They ultimately, the book ends abruptly when the gospel is in Rome. The book ends abruptly, and I, I've, I think you've heard me mention this before. It ends abruptly because, truth be told, what the book of Acts chronicles hasn't finished. You say, well, what is the book of Acts? The book of Acts begins with this. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until he was taken up to heaven, after which by the Holy Spirit, and he goes on to say from there, the emphasis is, and, and, and by the way, that the, the first work is Luke's gospel. We'll come back to that in a second. The emphasis there is, at first, I, I wrote to you about everything Jesus started to do. Now I'm writing you, telling you about everything he's continuing to do. Because just because Jesus sent it into heaven and we don't see him physically on earth, he's not stopped working. I'm writing about everything Jesus is continuing to do through his church, just like Jesus said, the gates of hell will not overpower my church. Through his church, empowered by the third person of the Trinity, God himself, the Holy Spirit. And so that's what the book of Acts chronicles. It chronicles the work that Jesus continues to do in and through the local church, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and taking the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth, and it ends abruptly because that work has not stopped. Instead, we now, and all the other true local churches around this world in Christ, carry that baton until the Lord brings us home or until He returns, if that should be in our lifetime. Now, who wrote the book of Acts? The book of Acts was written by Luke. We know him as Luke the physician. We know from the verse I just read that the author of the Gospel of Luke, who writes to the great Theophilus, is obviously the same one writing the book of Acts. So really, Acts is essentially the sequel. If you're, if you're a movie or book person, it's the sequel to the Gospel of Luke. In fact, it'd be worthwhile sometime if you've never done it and you want uh, to know where to read in Scripture, go, go start in Luke, read through the Gospel of Luke, and then jump to Acts and read through the book of Acts. And you'll notice there are, there are similarities in what Luke tends to, uh, to focus on. In the Gospel of Luke, there is major emphasis on how Jesus, in humbling himself and taking on humanity, was dependent upon the Holy Spirit for the strength and the power to do what God had called him to do. And you see that same emphasis. So when Jesus sets an example, and then you see how that plays out in the book of Acts. We know from Luke, we'll see as, as, you, as you read through the book of Acts, there will come a point where you, you, you read of things in the third person, and then all of a sudden you'll start read of things in the first person because the writer all of a sudden is now present for the events. Uh, the, the early church, uh, there's it almost unanimously accepted that Luke was the writer. Luke is most likely a Gentile. His name is Greek. We know from Colossians chapter 4, he's a physician. It's suggested he is a native of Antioch and uh, died around the age of 84 years later. Now, when did, when did he write the book, of, the book of Acts? Well, he had to wait until at least the early 60s because the book of Acts ends in the early 60s. So he can't obviously have written it prior to that because he doesn't indicate that he's writing prophecies, writing what had happened. Uh, there's some who would say it happens later, like the 70s or 80s, but likely it's sometime in the mid-60s. Sometime in the mid-60s, which is around the time that you're also going to find uh, one of the, really one of the first true major 
There have been persecutions prior to this, but this is one of the first real straight from Rome. Nero's going crazy. This is the persecution that will kill Paul. This is the persecution that will kill Peter. Obviously, two of, uh, even to us, just as in the early church, two of the big names. So in the middle of the 60s is when this would have been written. And it's, again, it's, it's to demonstrate it's to demonstrate that the work that Jesus came and said and the work that Jesus came and started, it's still going. And if you accept, if you think about this with me, if it's written in the mid-60s, then the people who are reading it are reading it under understanding all of a sudden all this persecution they are facing, all this assault which has put to death two of the pillars of the church, Peter and Paul, that persecution's not going to stop what Jesus is doing because the Holy Spirit's going to empower them and carry them through. There's a powerful testament there. Now, when you walk through the book of Acts, and here's where I'm, I'm going to move a little bit, little bit quicker before we jump into looking at the life of Paul. When you move into the book of Acts, here, here's a rough outline. Chapter, chapters 1 and 2 look at what we would call the birth of the first church. This is the beginnings of the first church there in Jerusalem. We see in, in verses 1 through verse uh, through verse 11, it's focused on what Jesus, during the 40 days of his resurrection time on earth, uh, he was teaching his disciples, and then his ascension, his command that they wait before they go and be his witnesses, they wait for the Holy Spirit to come upon them. That last half of chapter 1 set <laughs> details uh, in, an, in a clear change from the gospel of Luke, the disciples, rather than ignoring what he said or misunderstanding what he said, they just do what he said. They go back to the upper room, they gather, they're meeting, they're praying, and they're waiting, and they wait for the Holy Spirit to come. The Holy Spirit, of course, comes, uh, comes upon them mightily. They go out on the day of Pentecost, that's chapter 2. Uh, day of Pentecost, or came from heaven, a noise like a violent rushing wind. It filled the whole house where they were sitting. Tongues of fire distributed themselves. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with with other tongues as the Spirit gave utterances. And so they go up to the temple and they began to speak the gospel. And this strange thing happens. All these, all these Jews and, and some, uh, some Gentiles from out of town are there for this, this huge celebration, this huge festival. As they're all gathered there in that place, they begin to hear these people speak the gospel in their own home languages. And there's this, and they begin to say, what's going on? And of course, I just love the depravity of humanity. You begin to hear somebody speak in your own language that you know doesn't know your own language, and the answer is, man, they must have gotten drunk early this morning, because that's what we all know drunk people do, is clearly speak in other languages that they don't know. So Peter stands up, and Peter proceeds to preach uh, this first sermon, and, and, and it's, it's, it's a remarkable sermon. In fact, there's several of these evangelistic sermons that Luke records throughout the, gospel, uh, the, gospel, throughout the book of Acts. He records Peter's here. He's going to record Stephen's defense, which is in and of itself an evangelistic sermon. He's going to record several of Paul's uh, evangelistic sermons. Uh, of course, one that so many know, Acts 17 on Mars Hill. But he records the the sermon, and Peter doesn't hold back. Peter does not hold back in the sermon. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed him to the cross at the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Uh, he says, brethren, I, I most confidently say to you, uh, or hang on, um, this is Jesus God raised up to which we are all witnesses. I mean, he doesn't hold back. This Jesus, you saw him. You saw the wonders. You saw the signs. You saw what was attested. You're the ones who put him on the cross. Now, I'm not saying this advocates for Turner Burn preaching, don't mishear me, but it also clearly says that Peter wasn't too concerned about how everybody felt that day. They needed to understand it was them and their sin that nailed Christ to the cross, unless they be like Pilate, who foolishly said, I wash my ha hands of this man's blood. Can't, don't want to wash your hands of the one thing that can save you from your sin. So when it says, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart, verse 37, they were pierced to the heart. And they said to Peter, what shall we do? 
Now, just, just to, I told you I'd try to go fast, and here I am. Um, but I, want you, I do want you to see, because I've several. Uh, I shared some of this with our, with our leaders uh, the other night, but I want you to pay attention. It says, they were pierced to the heart. They heard the, Peter's sermon. Now realize, now on one hand, we can make a big deal and say, Peter's never had any formal training. He's never had any seminary. He's never had any speaking classes. He's just some backwater fisherman, and that's true. At the same time, I do feel like walking around with Jesus for three and a half years and listening to Jesus speak, and that's probably better than seminary training. At the same time, we know he, he wasn't really good with his seminary training until at minimum 40 days, the 40 days prior to this. But I want you to notice pierced. Something about what Peter said tore through the hearts and souls. You think about the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to pierce the division between bone and marrow, between soul and spirit. They were pierced in a way that, can, that, that does not come about because of great strategies, because of creative wordsmithing. They were pierced in a way that only comes about when the Spirit of God takes the Word of God and pierces a heart. There is something, there is a work of God, a supernatural work taking place, and they are pierced. What shall we do? And Peter says, repent each of you. Be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And he, and he goes on from there. Now, just quick notice here because this is a verse that can come up in contention denominationally. Repent, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is the main verse that those who teach you must be baptized in order to be saved would hold to. He says, repent, be baptized for the forgiveness of sin. Here's the problem with that. One, everywhere else you're taught in Scripture how to be saved, it never mentions baptism. So you have to ask yourself, is this a, a, a prescriptive, a command that's binding everywhere, or is this descriptive of simply what was said, and we're going to look at all the other places? Two, there's clear examples in Scripture of people who are saved and who've never been baptized, a.k.a. the thief on the cross. However, there's another reality here, and this is where you've got to pay attention in Scripture when you see the word baptized. We hear the word baptized in the English language, and every one of us thinks the same thing. If, you're, if you grew up Baptist or you grew up in, in, a, in a church that honors believers' baptism by immersion, we think of someone getting dunked. If you grew up in a mainline denomination, you may also have the imagery of baby being sprinkled because that word baptized, that's what it means in English. Here's the real truth. The Greek word is baptizo. And what they did in the English Bible is rather than translating the word, Here's what baptizo means. Let's take what it means and put it into English. They transliterated the word. Baptizo, we'll call that baptize. The reason for that is because the word baptizo in Greek means to fully immerse in and under something. So when it is referring to water baptism, if you translate it in the Church of England, which does baby sprinkling, then you have to own the fact that you're not baptizing correctly. Because the word means, why do, we, why do we, as best we can, if someone's physically able, why do we take someone, a believer, and fully immerse them underwater? Because that's what the word baptize means, to fully immerse. Which also means baptism in Greek can refer to more than just water baptism. So if you are to be immersed in the Holy Spirit for the forgiveness of your sins, and what's being talked about there. Is not water baptism. What's being talked about there is simply being saved by the Holy Spirit. Titus chapter 3, being saved by the washing and renewing and regeneration of the Holy Spirit. So there are ways, there, there are, uh, you can understand it that way. You can't understand he's just simply saying repent. And then if the repentance, that's the, that's the point of salvation. And being baptized, if he is referring to water baptism, he's, he's referencing Christ's command is, is, is in the demonstration of it. You can, there's a variety of ways you can potentially take it, but I want to be clear, uh, if you've ever heard that, the, you cannot, if you really dig in, and again, time doesn't permit to fully dig in tonight because the goal is not to spend an hour going through Acts chapter 2, even though I've almost done it. Um, kidding, it's been about five minutes. But, um, but you can't use that. You, you, baptism is not necessary 
to go to heaven and be saved. Baptism is necessary if you're around this earth much longer after your salvation in order to be obedient to what Christ has commanded. So we don't lessen the importance, but it's not salvific in nature. So it says those who received his word, they went out that day, they were baptized, they were publicly proclaiming their salvation. They were, uh, they were publicly identifying with the people of Christ. Uh, we're, at, we're added that day about 3,000 souls. Everyone kept feeling uh, a sense of awe, and it goes on to describe the committedness, the selflessness of the early church, their devotion to each other, to the Word of God, to Lord's Supper, to prayer. I will point that out. Acts 2.42, which by the way, if you ever see a college ministry, it's 2.42. It's like the most favorite numerical name to name a college ministry. Drives me nuts. But, uh, and I've got a good friend, that's the name of the ministry. Doesn't drive, he doesn't drive me nuts, but just, uh, you'll see tons of college. 2.42, we're going to be a 2.42 group, a 2.42 group. And this is why, because Acts 2.42 says this, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, that'd be the correct preaching of the Word of God, to the fellowship, and that's not just to having a good Christian Southern Baptist potluck where we eat some good food and ask how the nieces and nephews are doing. That's, that speaks the idea of a commonly shared purpose and hope. And really, I mean, it's the idea of truly, soulfully caring for one another, of rejoicing with one another, of weeping with one another, of there being something rich that unites us. By the way, fellowship only comes from the Holy Spirit. Uh, to the breaking of bread, that's the Lord's Supper. And then to, uh, to excellent... Uh, stylistically preferred praise music. It's not what it says. It says to prayer, corporately gathered prayer. And here's why I point that out. Um, and there's going to be stuff coming up, so I'm going to resist the urge to go too deep in tonight. I've shared with our deacons. I've shared with our, um, our uh, team leaders and our grow group leaders this past Sunday night. It's going to be some things we look at these next three Sundays surrounding prayer most of you've spent most of your life in church in the room. We, we pray almost as a formality at times. We'll pray to open the service. We'll pray to close the service. But this kind of prayer that they're talking about, this is they're, they're getting on their knees and they're praying together, praying with one another, praying for one another. Yet most of the time in the way that we structure our worship services in America, there's no space for corporate prayer. And when we try to do it, everybody feels a little weird about it. And I just have to wonder if part of the reason our churches have struggled to be so effective in our culture for the last 50 to 100 years, when we have had more cultural influence, now not presently, but many of you remember the cultural influence of the church in the 50s and the 60s, a return in the 80s. We've had more influence, we've had more creativity We've had more ingenuity. We've had more marketing strategies. We've had more resources to put those things together, print, audio, visual. And yet we can't seem to make, we're making less and less of a dent in the lostness of our culture. Could it be that we spend all our time on those things and then we ask God to bless them rather than getting on our knees and saying, God, do what only you can do. Pierce hearts and only you can, and then show us what we need to do over here, and we'll commit to just doing what you show us to do. Could it be that there really is a prayerlessness in our churches? I'm not saying, no, no good church worth its salt doesn't pray. Don't get, uh, but are we truly a praying church? And you'll see as you read through the book of Acts, every time something big happens in the life of the church, what do they do? They don't run back and talk about it. They run back and they pray about it. And then they talk about it. There will be more to say about that in time, but I just want you to notice there what they devoted themselves to. They devoted themselves to the teaching of God's word, to true and rich fellowship, to the remembrance of the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. And church family, if we're going to be a church that makes any kind of dent in the lostness of our culture, it's going, to, it's going to have to be because we stand upon the foundation of Jesus Christ at his word. And we are prostrated on that foundation praying before we're ever trying to set up any two by fours to build the building. 
So book of Acts moves from here. You, you capture in, in chapters three and chapters four a healing. It's gonna be the first time that, that the church sees persecution uh, for standing. They're gonna arrest Peter and John and threaten them and they're ultimately gonna release them. You the shake, come back. This is one of those examples in chapter four where they pray. Uh, and the Holy Spirit, as a response to their prayer, fills them with boldness, and they go out and they speak the word with more boldness. Uh, Acts chapter 5 may be the most entertaining passage I have ever taught to a group of teenagers back when I was a student pastor, because Acts chapter 5, everyone, everyone is there being moved by the Holy Spirit. There's this unmistakable generosity that is reflective of God's generosity. People are voluntarily selling land. They're voluntarily giving over their goods. They're not being forced to. It's all voluntary as the Spirit moves within them. But they're seeing some of them have much, some of them have little, and the ones who have much are selling things so they can take care of the, the, the ones who have little. There's this incredible selfless generosity, this giving that is taking place in and through the church. And chapter 5 talks about uh, Ananias and Sapphira, Ananias and Sapphira, who sell a piece of property, they're going to give some of it, but they, that they lie and say they're giving more than what they're really giving. And of course, it's a great story because Ananias, I, mean, I guess it's not really a great story. I got to be careful how I say that. Uh, if you know the story, Ananias goes in, he lies to Peter. Peter says, why are you lying to the Holy Spirit? Boom, drops dead. The guys come in. <laughs> just, again, I see these little like cartoon figures. The guys shuffle in, they grab his body, they run out, they dig a ditch, they drop his body in. And then as soon as that's finished, the, the dust barely settled, Sapphira comes in and the same thing repeats, boom, she drops dead and it says fear gripped the church. It seems like a really intense, harsh story. And one, it tells you that um, while God is with, with the overwhelming majority of the time patient with our sin, sometimes you will never know when you reach the end of God's patience with the sin in your life as a believer. But the real deal is this, it was designed to tell the early church, God does, take, God does take holiness seriously. He takes his holiness seriously, he takes his people. And here's the interesting thing there. And in Irish and Sapphira, they don't go have an affair on each other. They're not out getting drunk and gambling their money all over the town. They're, they lie. Many of us, we go, oh, it's a lie. Not to God. God takes all sin seriously not just the sins we deem to be the big sins. And so there is, there is this moment that's critical in the life of the early church uh, that, that grips them. Uh, great fear came over the whole church and they came over, over these things. And at the hand of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place. And as you move forward, you get to chapter six, uh, the, the amount of ministry going on in that early church is so much that the, the apostles who at that point are functioning as the pastors, they can't maintain the ministry of the word and prayer uh, which means when you think about uh, me as your pastor, when you think about other pastors on staff, one of our number one charges in Scripture is to, is, is to the ministry of the Word and prayer. And I, I'm always grateful for your encouragement and your prayer in that prayer that we're seeking God, uh, ministry of the Word. Why? Because it, uh, it takes a whole lot more work than anyone would ever imagine to be prepared to preach and teach the Word of God. Uh, here, <laughs> I saw someone post... A uh, picture of the iceberg, you know, the itty bitty part of the iceberg above the sea, and then there's a the massive part underneath, and it said, The sermon people hear, the sermon that was prepared. Uh, and so, because the needs of the ministry are so great, and it's keeping them from being in prayer and in the word as they need to be, this is where the office of deacon is formed. The office of deacon. Deacon is simply a Greek word, which means servant. And so these, they elect from among themselves. Why do we as a congregation, why do you as a congregation, I say we, I'm involved in that too, but I don't appoint deacons as pastor. We vote on them as a church. Why? Because that's the model we see in the book of Acts. And these men step in and they begin to do and handle the work of the ministry. Of course, one of them is Stephen. Stephen gets arrested. Uh, Acts chapter 7 is, is an incredible, it is, it is a long chapter. It is his defense being threatened for his life. It is incredible what is in there. Time does not permit tonight to even go into it, but ultimately they, they hear this. So now remember, you had some on Pentecost Sunday, they're pierced to the heart. They respond in repentance. These ones hear this. It says in verse 54, Acts 7, 54, when they heard this, they were cut to the quick. They gnashed their teeth at him, but being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He said, behold, I see the heavens open and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. They cried out with a loud voice. They covered their ears. They rushed at him with one impulse. They drove him out of the city. They proceed to stone him. Here's what's interesting. One, there is a 
horrific response of hatred towards Stephen for what he presents to them. And this is the truth in calling out their sin. It says that he, being full of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit enabled him to glimpse into heaven and see Jesus standing. Now, here's what's fascinating. This is only one of two times, I believe, in the whole New Testament where Jesus in heaven is pictured standing. The rest of the time, Jesus is seated. Why? Because he's a great high priest, and the high priest would only sit down when the work was finished, which means the earthly high priest didn't sit down on the work because the job was never done. Jesus, as our great high priest, he said, what on the cross? To tell us, die. It is finished. The work of redemption is finished. Salvation has been secured for anyone who would trust Christ in faith. He sits down at the right hand. Why is he standing here? Well, the, the primary reason anyone can really tell in studying and doing in that is Jesus is standing in that moment in fellowship and support and honor of Stephen. The other time that I'm aware of in the New Testament is when Paul makes the statement, there was no one with me at my trial, but Jesus stood with me. When you lay your life on the line to honor Jesus Christ, it may not result in your deliverance. It may result in your painful death at the hand of stones. But Jesus stood in honor. And Paul makes the same statement in 2 Timothy right after that. He stands he stood with me, he who is able to deliver me from the lion's mouth and see me safely home. So it's an incredible reality of our God. Our God does not always spare us the suffering this side of heaven. But when we set our hearts to honor him, you better believe Jesus stands in support, unity, fellowship, and honor. That's why Paul talks about the fellowship of his sufferings. There is an intimacy there with Christ that is only known when you and I are willing to follow him into the valley of the shadow of death. Now, having said that, this is the first martyr. Martyr is simply the Greek word for witness. That's what it is. Martyrios, it means witness. When he says, you will be my witnesses, you will be my materios. A martyr has come to mean in our language one who not only has given witness but has lost their life for it. This is the first martyr in the church. But you also notice that those who stoned him, they laid their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And this is a pivot point in the story of the book of Acts. Chapter 8 will start and say that this Saul uh, was passionate and he began persecuting the believers. Look with me, chapter 8. And on that day, that day Stephen dies, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And notice what it says. And they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Now, prior to this point, Jesus said, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Prior to this point, with the exception of those who were guests from out of town who got saved on Pentecost Sunday and then went home, with their exception, notice the gospel hadn't moved. And then notice what the statement is. So that it spread them where? It's very specific. All throughout Judea and Samaria. And there's some who would say and note from that that even in the early church, we can have a tendency as believers to get real comfortable being together in one spot. And sometimes God has to allow things to move us on. Now, maybe that's what happened here. Maybe they were comfortable. Maybe not. It's kind of reading in. But what we do know is this. What man intended for evil... God used for good and used that persecution to send out his believers who at that point would have at least had a little bit of discipleship sitting under. They were devoted. They were showing up for church every day, hearing the apostles teach, devoting to fellowship, and now they are out to Judea and to Samaria. And likely, this is that persecution which when we talk about the book of James that we've been walking through and how those believers were pushed out by persecution from Jerusalem into the surrounding areas, this is most likely the persecution that we're referring to there, that, that has scattered them out, that has dispersed them. Uh, it doesn't mean that James was necessarily written right here, but that's likely what, uh, what that was. There's a good chance. And so here's what happens right after that. Philip, not the apostle Philip, but Philip the evangelist, he goes up 
up here to Samaria. Now remember, uh, Samaritans get along with Jews, yes or no? No. Bad blood. It's like Ohio State and Michigan. It's like UT and OU. Uh, fill in the gap. It's like the Yankees and the Red Sox. They don't like each other. Uh, they, now, Jesus would frequently go through here and obviously demonstrate, but he goes up to Samaria. Philip goes up to Samaria and, and, all, and, and is just, just summarizing. Here's what takes place. Uh, great awakening breaks out in Samaria. People start responding to Jesus Christ. People start confessing him as Lord to get saved. Now, there's an interesting little note here. Verse 14, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit for he had not yet fallen upon them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus and they began laying their hands on them and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. That's a unique little instance. Why? Here's why I bring this up. I had a conversation today with a church member who's in, in a, in a uh, deeply Pentecostal school and that is a very key verse that the Pentecostal tradition will use to say that, yes, at the moment of salvation, you receive the Holy Spirit, but there's a secondary baptism of the Holy Spirit where you will really know his power and really have the ability to stand and confront sin. And, and then various versions of that will say you'll have certain spiritual gifts or not that accompany with it. That is not what this is referring to. There's three instances in the book of Acts where you see the Holy Spirit come down at, at what we might say is not the exact moment of salvation. Three instances. One is, we already looked at chapter one, chapter two, the first believers, those first Christians, the 120 waiting in the upper room for the Holy Spirit to come. Well, they've already believed in Jesus. Jesus has said as much. Of course, the Holy Spirit's going to come kind of differently because they're the first. None of us are the first <laughs> or the subsequent. Samaria, it's a group of people that were viewed by, by the people of God as being outside the people of God. So the fact that the apostles go, see that they really are confessing Jesus and ask the Holy Spirit to fill them, it's designed right there to be a sign of affirmation to the early church that yes, indeed, the Samaritans are able to be saved just the same as those who at that point are, are, are primarily Jews. Subsequent to this, you don't see other Samaritans when they come to faith in Christ have to wait on the apostles to come pray for the Holy Spirit to come down the, they just pray and ask Jesus to save them, and the Holy Spirit enters them. But there's something unique here. The third instance is in chapter 10 when it's Cornelius the Gentile. And again, what's going on there? Well, we got what's the way that the early church, the apostles, how'd they know you were really saved? What's the confirmation you're really saved if the Holy Spirit indwells you? So seeing that the Holy Spirit come down and indwelt those in Samaria, seeing the Holy Spirit come down and indwell Cornelius, those were signs, those were evidences, testimonies, that you could be a Samaritan, that you could be a Gentile, and you could, in fact, be saved. So that's why those three instances are unique in that, in that wording of they come to faith in Christ, and then it seems like the Holy Spirit comes on them secondary. It's because those are unique. And this is one of the tough things as you read through Acts. Acts is a descriptive book. Everything in it is not necessarily prescriptive. If you read the gospel, if you read, we're doing it in James, right? James says, do this. Well, we're to do it. Why? Because it's prescriptive. It's a command. That's what it's calling us to. Acts is not always giving a, a, a command. It's just simply describing, here's what's happening. Here's how it happened. Here's where it went. So uh, you got that great revival is going all over the place, awakening in Samaria. And then out of nowhere, the angel of the Lord tells Philip, get up, go down to the middle of nowhere. And he does it. And then he says, you see that carriage in the middle of nowhere? Go walk up to it. And he walks up. And of course, that's the, the Ethiopian eunuch who's reading the most perfect passage of Scripture in the Old Testament ever to be able to say, and he says, what does this mean, Isaiah 53? And he says, I'll tell you what it means. The eunuch gets saved. He gets baptized. All of that is happening uh, down here. So Philip's gone from up here to down here. Uh, the Ethiopian eunuch gets saved on his way back to Africa and will be the first of, um, will be the first of, the believers in Africa, and he'll take the gospel with them. Now you get to chapter nine. So here's what's happened from one to chapter nine. Massive movement in Jerusalem. Persecution breaks out, spreads the believers in Judea and Samaria. Awakening happening in Samaria. 
And now we see a little, a little uh, international flavor is moving down into Africa. Um, and then we get to chapter nine. Chapter nine is the conversion of Saul. Saul's going up to Damascus. Saul's going up from Jerusalem up to Damascus, which I, these colors I, are so hard to read. Damascus is going to be, uh, it's because that map's not big enough. That's why. Jerusalem's down here. He's going to go up to Damascus because he's heard some of those believers who escaped the persecution in Jerusalem. They're up here. He's on his way, blinding light. Uh, we'll know from the other of Saul's testimonies what was to the people around him, a blinding light was actually a, an appearance of Jesus in the flesh because he describes himself in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 13, sorry, 15, as one who has seen the resurrected Jesus. Jesus, of course, Saul, Saul. And it's interesting, not Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my followers? It's Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Because that's the level of intimacy in the sufferings of Jesus and the sufferings of his church. He's not separated from, but when we suffer for his sake, he suffers with us and we suffer with him. Obviously, Saul comes to faith in Christ. Huge, that will become, it's kind of like a make a note, it'll become a big deal. Peter is, is next seen and uh, Peter ends up chapter 10. Of course, that's the first, uh, the first major focus on Gentiles coming to faith in Christ. Uh, Cornelius and his household come to faith in Christ. Chapter 10 ends with Peter saying, hey, God is, God is bringing salvation to the Gentiles. And everybody said, oh my goodness, they were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles too. Then you get to chapter 11. Peter goes back to Jerusalem. He gives a report. Uh, it's going to be in chapter it's going to be in chapter, that's going to be in chapter 11. Chapter 11 is also going to introduce us to the church in Antioch. So you've got Antioch way up here in what's modern day Syria. This is going to introduce us to this uh, amazing church up there. That's where Saul, who's now become Paul, he has now ended up in the church in Antioch. And they're going to go down to give a report to Jerusalem about all of the, the Gentiles up there that are coming to faith in Christ in addition to take a love offering. So they go down. You're going to see in chapter 12, Peter's arrested. Chapter 12 is when the first of the apostles die. James the apostle dies, chapter 12. Uh, Peter's going to be put to death. He's delivered by the angel in, in the midst of the night. And then Herod, the Herod who tried, uh, tried Jesus, will die at the end of chapter 12. And you'll see this in, in, at the end of chapter 12. But the word of the Lord continued to grow and be multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their mission, taking along with them John, who was also called Mark. If you remember from the gospel writers, that's the writer of the gospel of Mark. John Mark writes the Gospel of Mark. So you got Saul, who will soon be uh, called Paul, uh, Barnabas, and John Mark. And then you get there to chapter 13, and this is really the ultimate pivot point in the book of Acts. Prior to this, all of our focus has been in this, really in this area, with a little bit of mention up here and a little bit of mention up here. Now we're up here, church at Antioch says they're ministering and, 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 and to the Lord and fasting. They're seeking the Lord. There they are. They're in corporate prayer. And the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them to do. When they had fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them on their way. And this is the beginning of Paul's missionary journeys. Here's the first missionary journey of Paul. It's, it's recorded in Acts 13 through Acts 14. The first missionary journey, you can see the route he's going to take. They're going to come down to Cyprus, go up into Southern Asia Minor. You'll notice here this green region. This is the region of Galatia because there is no city of Galatia. The Galatian letter was really a letter that was delivered to multiple churches that are in this region. And you see that they come back. Acts chapter 15 is going to be the Jerusalem Council where they're trying to decide how, how, how Jewish do the new believers need to be. Then you're going to pick up on the second missionary journey of Paul, which is going to retrace some of their steps up into some of the churches they started. But rather than coming back, this is, of course, if you're at Winter Renewal and you heard Papa preached through Acts 16 and the Holy Spirit saying, nope, you can't go into Asia. You can't, you can't go this way. You can't go up into Bithynia and Pontus. You can't go into Asia. So they go this way. Nope, you can't go into Bithynia and Pontus. And he ends up over here. And then they have the Macedonian vision. This is where all this has taken place. This is coming into Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, 
uh, down here into Corinth and Athens and Ephesus, and that's where all the beginnings of all of those, those names of the letters, the churches we know, that second missionary journey. Then you have in the book of Acts, we'll trace the next, the third missionary journey of Paul, which you can... Um, third missionary journey of Paul, which is very similar, but comes back. And then the the book of Acts will trace as Paul comes back from that third missionary journey to Jerusalem, the Holy Spirit's making clear to him, you're going to go back and you're going to suffer. The Jews are going to arrest you. He's going to make it back to to Jerusalem. The Jews can't stand him. They hate him. Uh, They they, they lie to catch him. Uh, He's going to be placed under the guard of the Romans. They're going to move him up in prison. This is going to be in Jerusalem. They're going to move him up to what we call Caesarea Maritime, a Caesarea, Caesarea by the sea, so not Caesarea Philippi, where Peter made the great confession in the north, uh, you, are the, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is Caesarea Maritime. It's beautiful. It's a great site if you ever get to go to the Holy Land. This is the site for years where the, the secular historian said, your Bible's full of made-up people. There's no such person as Pontius Pilate in the records. And then they were just doing some more digging at Caesarea Maritime and find a bunch of stuff that says Pontius Pilate, Pontius Pilate's vacation house, Pontius Pilate, Pontius Pilate. So, uh, and all that, that's, it's a major archaeological site, fascinating to see. Uh, but he's going to be, here's the deal with Paul, understand this, when Paul is saved, and we'll look at more of this next week, because what we're going to do next week is kind of I'm, I'm, I'm briefly just telling you the missionary journeys because what I, want you, what I want to do, since most of us are so familiar with Paul, is I want us to see a little bit, we'll look at it next week, really the chronological look of Paul's life because there's a lot of Paul's life that you don't find in Acts, you find in his letters, and so we can put it all together and it's pretty remarkable to see how God moved and shaped his life. But when Paul, when Paul is saved, back in Acts chapter 9, right? remember he sees Jesus, he hears Jesus' voice, and scales form over his eyes. And he ends up in Damascus. He can't see. He's blind. And, and, and the Holy Spirit uh, nudges another believer in the area, Ananias, not the Ananias who lied and died. He's dead, but different Ananias. Hey, Ananias, Saul, I need you to go. And, and, and what he says to Ananias, because Ananias says, whoa, wait a minute, Lord, that's the guy, that's, that's the guy hunting all of us down. And, and the Lord makes this statement. He says, I have, I, he is my chosen instrument to reach the Gentiles, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my sake. And if you really study, and we'll see it in the life of Paul, Paul suffered, Paul suffered, Paul suffered greatly. And a lot of times when we read through his letters or we read through even in Acts, you can kind of miss, remember Acts, at this point, at this point, and what we've talked about tonight, it doesn't feel like it, but we've actually covered 25 years. We've covered 25 years of early church history. And just to that point, Paul's going to be arrested. When he's arrested, he's going to languish in prison for two years in Caesarea Maritime. Then they're going to put him on the boat. They're going to sail because he appeals to Caesar. He's going to get to Rome. And when he gets to Rome, he's going to be in house arrest prison for another two years. So Paul's going to spend by the, from the end of the third missionary journey to the end of the, the book of Acts. So we're, we're talking Acts Acts chapter, Acts chapter 21 through the end of the book has four years that Paul is spending in prison. Of course, in prison is where we get the prison epistles, uh, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and, and Philemon. And the book of Acts is going to end this way. He's going to end up, he appeals to Caesar in Caesarea Maritime because Paul has Roman citizenship. We'll see more of that next week at his life. He's going to get to Rome. And this is how the book of Acts ends says, when they had set a day for Paul, they came to him at his lodging in large numbers, and he explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them from current, uh, concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets from morning until evening. So as it says, once, once Paul got fixed in his lodging, people came to see him in droves. And he spent all day talking to them, trying to demonstrate that Jesus is in fact the Messiah that the Old Testament scriptures point to. And it says, some were persuaded, by the things spoken, but others would not believe. Now, that should also encourage you. If you've ever shared the gospel and someone didn't believe, you're in good company. Paul shared the gospel all day and all night with people, and there were some who didn't believe because that's the sorrow of the human heart. And when they did, did not agree with one another, they began leaving after Paul had spoken. One 
parting word. The Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah, and he quotes some things. He says in verse 28, Therefore let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will also listen. When they had spoken these word, he had spoken these words, the Jews departed, having a great dispute among themselves. And then look at what it says. And he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness, unhindered. And then the book of Acts ends. The book of Acts ends. Now, having given you that overview, the book of Acts is absolutely remarkable. And the reason I ask somewhat the question of how many of us as believers have really spent time walking through the book of Acts. The reason I ask that is because if you really read the book of Acts, and you really start to ponder it in your heart, one, you will be challenged as an individual believer. Am I that sensitive to the Holy Spirit? Am I willing to follow the Holy Spirit's leadership when it seems crazy? There's a great revival going on. Philip, go down to the middle of nowhere in the, in the wilderness south. Walk up to that carriage. Am I willing for the Lord to say, walk up to that waiter? Am I willing for the Lord? There's all sorts of personal. Am I willing to be generous and selfless to help brothers and sisters out in need? Am I, and not just checking off, checking off my 10% tithe box, but, but, but to give in other ways? To, to, am I even willing to check off the 10% tithe? Whatever. Uh, am, am I willing to, to share the gospel? Am I willing? Could, could God? Yes, even. I realize most of the room is over the age of 50 tonight. And God didn't call Moses till he was 80 to go to Egypt. So God could call, I got plenty of time to call you to go do something. God calls some of you without kids to go spend the next 10 years, 20 years of your life overseas as missionaries. Are you willing to heed the Holy Spirit? Are you willing to follow? I mean, the book of Acts will step on all sorts of our toes individually. also encourage us because you watch the Holy Spirit empower his, his people to do things that they were never qualified to do. You also watch the wisdom of God. I had someone point this out to me. If, if we were... If we were the director of the early church and we were looking at in our strategy, Peter and Paul, because those are the really two of the major figures in the book. The first half of the book really, even though there's some other characters, you see Peter a lot. The second half of the book is really Paul, all Paul. You got Peter, who's a scrappy fisherman, who grew up and ran a business in the Sea of Galilee, which was a massively Gentile area. You got Paul, who's a Pharisee of Pharisees, a Hebrew of Hebrews, rising up to stardom in the Jewish culture. Would it not make a whole lot of sense for Peter to be the apostle to the Gentiles and Paul to be the apostle to the Jews? Seems to me it would. Seems to God it wouldn't. Peter's the apostle to Jews. And Paul's the apostle to the Gentiles. Because God's wisdom is far greater than our wisdom. There's encouragement there. There's encouragement that in the midst of all the highs and lows, there's the encouragement that in the midst of all these cities where persecution broke out, not one of them snuffed the church out. Churches suffered, but the churches endured. There's all sorts of things that steps on our toes. You read through the book of Acts, and you go, man, I haven't seen a whole lot of churches that really look and feel like this. The book of Acts is a phenomenal book, and I can't help but wonder if maybe the part of the reason many of us are so unfamiliar with it is that it either gets hijacked by people who try to make it say things it doesn't really say in contradiction to other parts of Scripture. And maybe some of the reason we're so unfamiliar as churches with, with knowing how to really follow the leading of the Holy Spirit and walking in His power and knowing what it looks like to be a praying church and a giving church. Honestly, it's maybe because we are so unfamiliar with the one book of Scripture that, that shows in, in massive 4K technicolor glory what happens when God really saves people and puts them together in a local church and that local church says, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, yes, Lord. Love the book of Acts. Part of the reason I also want to move quicker because I, I would love to come back and, and at some point, just know at some point, we'll walk through the book of Acts much slower. 
But if we move at the pace that I preach on Sundays and I preach through the book of Acts, we got to be prepared to walk through the book of Acts for like three years. So uh, that's why we hadn't done it yet. Um, but the book of Acts is phenomenal. Now, again, I, I rushed through the last half, but that is because what we're going to do next week, and, and next week we'll begin looking at the New Testament epistles, is we're going to walk through, and, and it includes the book of Acts, we're going to walk through the life, the, the chronological life of Paul, and in there start to talk about the letter to the Romans, Galatians, look at his early epistles, Romans, Galatians, First and Second Corinthians, which are actually Second and Fourth Corinthians because we don't have First and Third Corinthians. Ah, that one got some of you in the room, but it's true. Uh, First and Second Thessalonians. Uh, and so we will walk through the life of Paul. There's some things you, you don't realize because Paul shares bits of his testimony in so many of his letters. You don't realize all sorts of things. Like I'll give you this. We see Paul saved in Acts chapter 9. We see Paul go out as a missionary in Acts chapter 13. Feels like it's just a matter of a couple days. It's actually about 14 to 17 years that God trained him, prepared him, used him faithfully in local ministry before sending him out to do all the things that we know and think of with the Apostle Paul. So uh, appreciate you being here, church family. Excited for, for this. We'll walk through, um, walk through the life and times of, of Paul next week, but I encourage us. If anything we take away as we walk out of here tonight from the book of Acts, one day we will get before the Lord and we'll get to hear the rest of the book of Acts. And one day we'll be in heaven at the marriage supper of the Lamb. We won't care about time because we're going to be in glory. And you're going to eat all of the most great banquet food you've ever eaten just for sheer enjoyment of it because you don't need any of it because you're going to have a perfect body that doesn't, doesn't have need of water and food. And somewhere in there, somewhere in there, there's going to be the story of all Jesus began to do and continued to do through First Baptist Church Pflugerville by the power of the Holy Spirit in us and through us. And I hope and pray that for us as individuals and for us corporately, that it'll be a whole lot of all that Jesus continued to do through us and not a whole lot of all Jesus wanted to do through us, but we were too busy or had too good a strategy to have time to pay attention and allow him to do. Because that's the great news, church fan. Our world is an absolute mess. And if you try to pay attention to any of it and you have any bit of mercy in your heart, you're going to have a horribly depressing moment. But this world cannot snuff out his church. We are his church. The Holy Spirit lives inside of us. May we act like it. Because he's not done. Let me pray over us. Father, thank you that you're not done. May we be found faithful. God, one day every one of us is going to see you face to face. And may we not see you face to face and all of a sudden go, oh my goodness, Lord, you really are exactly who you said you are. Because we have been so distracted or so depressed or so whatever in the blank, so fearful, so doubting, whatever, that we didn't really believe what you said. But instead, Lord, when we, when we see you face to face, may we be able with joy in our heart to exult and say, you're exactly who you said you are and you're even more glorious than what I knew and imagined because we truly have believed your word. And that means, Lord, really believing your word that you have a kingdom mission in this world that we are a part of. And you didn't ask us to do it on, there, on our own, but Holy Spirit, you have indwelt us at the moment of salvation. You fill us with power. So may we walk in you. If in any way we are not walking in you, may we be sensitive to your conviction and to your grief over our sin. May we confess it. May we turn back to you in fellowship and may we just walk in the joyous um, reality of your grace, Father, and your power, Holy Spirit. 
And as Paul prayed, Lord, may you fill us with the words. May you open the doors that we would make known with boldness the truth of your word to a world that has only one hope, and that hope is you. Lord, may we do it when people accept it. May we do it when people reject it. May we do it until you return faithfully. Jesus, thank you for my church family. Make us what you desire us to be. And may your good and perfect will be done in us and be done through us. It is in your holy and awesome name we pray. Amen.